Hello and welcome to this podcast on the wonderful world of 19th century cutlery. I'm Katie, and in the next 10 to 15 minutes, I shall attempt to convert you to my opinion that cutlery is both exciting and wildly important, particularly if you're a middle-class member of Victorian society. But before we head off to the past, let us consider cutlery's place now. What is cutlery to us? Shiny objects we shove in a drawer. We only really value them when we don't have them. I don't know about you, but it's always a painful experience for me when all the teaspoons in the office have disappeared and you realise you've got to try and flip your tea bag out of your hot tea using only your fingers, or perhaps a pen. Knives, forks and spoons are tools we know should be used correctly, but who really knows how? We might perhaps remember that scene in Pretty Woman, where Julia Roberts is being taught to count the tines on the fork and ends up throwing a snail across the room. Others of us may have been taught the simple start at the outside and work in rule. But how often, in truth, are any of us presented with a dinner of so many courses that appropriate knowledge of cutlery is consistently and constantly required? This is the sound of a McDonald's restaurant on a Saturday lunchtime. Pop music, kids playing, and the rustle of paper napkins, the slurping of straws. The one thing you can't hear? The clatter of knives and forks. I must admit, this is a more familiar scene to me than a table spread with row upon row of shining silverware. Fish and chips at the beach, Fast food and foreign delicacies have become more interesting to us than knives, forks or spoons. I think most of us would agree with the philosopher Roger Paul Droit when he mused that the fork eludes scrutiny. Of course, I don't want to imply that our modern world never uses cutlery or ignores it completely. But these items are fundamentally not a lot of interest anymore. Even in Sheffield, the historical centre of British cutlery manufacture, knives and forks seem to have lost their original appeal. At the entrance of both the Millennium Gallery and the Kellam Island Museum, places that celebrate Sheffield's historical links with the cutlery trade, stand sculptures made from knives, forks and spoons. The original purpose of these objects have been lost, transformed into art. Repurposed, forgotten, unused. It's not surprising that we forget to see the significance of these objects to 19th century society. Indeed, I would argue that although our cultural memory of the Victorian era evokes images of grand dinner tables set with shining silverware, we, particularly those of us in the academic world, have chosen to ignore any significance these objects may have had on a wider and more personal level. I've spent the last three years delving into the weird and wonderful world of Victorian cutlery and its place in literature and culture. I have found these objects appearing in the most interesting and unexpected of places, falling out of cupboards, pinning windows shut, even coming alive in Alice Through the Looking Glass, where forks fuse with other items and fly around the room. When it comes to cutlery, expect the unexpected. One of the most unusual things I've found in my research is that in 19th century novels, men care a lot more about their cutlery than women do. 
This sounds a bit odd, particularly if you have come across the idea of the separate spheres, which broadly suggests that the home is the woman's realm, while the man spent time at work or the London club. You could easily assume that women, focusing on domestic harmony, would be more interested in their knives and forks. But no, the University of Birmingham has created a fantastic concordance tool called the Click Dickens Project, which makes it practical to demonstrate statistically that it is actually male characters that are repeatedly aligned with cutlery. As an online concordance, it is possible to search various terms of interest and receive results from a variety of 19th century texts. After combing through masses of knives, forks and spoons, and taking out any pitchforks, altogether cutlery relating to men account for approximately 72% of all cutlery used in these novels. Importantly though, it's not just men, but anxious men that are most profoundly affected by their relationship with cutlery. I love Dickens, and his works provide great examples of anxious men connected with cutlery. Firstly, we have the Pickwick Papers. When Mr Pickwick and Mr Tupman hear some startling news at dinner, we are told... Mr Pickwick's knife and fork fell from his hand. He stared across the table at Mr Tupman, who had dropped his knife and fork, and was looking as if he were about to sink into the ground without further notice. Their shock, surprise and discomfiture is demonstrated by their inability to keep hold of their cutlery. In fact, Mr Pickwick and his friends repeatedly drop their cutlery when shocked in this novel. In Bleak House, however, a moment of anxiety for Mr Guppy is connected with an inability to start using his knife and fork. In the moment before he confesses his love and proposes marriage to Miss Summerson, Mr Guppy sat down at the table and began nervously sharpening the carving knife on the carving fork. Still looking at me, as I felt quite sure without looking at him, in the same usual manner. The sharpening lasted so long that at last I felt a kind of obligation on me to raise my eyes in order that I might break the spell under which he seemed to labour, of not being able to leave off. He immediately looked at the dish and began to carve. In both these cases, anxiety and cutlery are connected. Moments like these litter 19th century novels, occurring far more often than you would expect. So why are 19th century men obsessed with and concerned by their cutlery? I argue that one of the key reasons for this anxiety is bound up in the act of carving, where proper use of the knife and fork is crucial. It is a task that holds a vast amount of social and historical power. While women did sometimes carve in the home, they are often represented as having subsidiary roles, helping to carve smaller dishes while their husbands carve the large meat. The role of the carver is almost always described as masculine. It is a term with a resonance that dates back to the 15th century courtly rank of the carver. The critic David Mitchell explains. In great households, Meat was cut by the carver, who used either two knives or a knife and fork, and then presented small pieces to the diner. Carvers were of gentle birth, and even with the demise of the gentleman servant by about 1650, carving remained an art required of the gentleman. A man carving in the 19th century could feel some symbolic connection, a sort of shared heritage, through the role of carving. And with the growth of the middle classes, this sense of chivalry and lineage meant that people could feel like they were connected to a higher social status 
simply by properly carving their family's meat. This role was key to a man's place in the home. John Tosh, a critic who examines masculinity in this period, discusses the man's role as the family provider, stating that this was shown less by his job than his role as giver of gifts. I would suggest, however, this duty is better demonstrated by a man stationed at the head of the dinner table. The man of the house would stand at the head of the table with all his family and guests watching, would be presented with a large piece of meat and would proceed to divide it up and serve it out to his family and guests. It was a spectacle for the rest who sat and waited for their food, a visual demonstration of man's domestic power. How embarrassing then if you couldn't carve. And this is where the problem lies. With the rise of the middle classes, men were increasingly unable to carve. It's easy to think we are the first generation to discover the joys of the self-help book. But of course, behavioural guides have been available for centuries. Immensely popular in the 19th century were etiquette and carving guides. These guides explained to those untaught, embarrassed carvers precisely what they ought to do. For instance, the Handbook of Carving, with hints on the etiquette of the dinner table, 1848, explains, with the aid of diagrams, how to carve a shoulder of mutton. Cut into the bone at the line one, and help thin slices of lean from each side of the incision. The prime part of the fat lies at the outer edge, at two. Should more meat be required than can be got from that part, cut on either side of line three, which represents the blade bone, and some good delicate slices may be procured. By cutting horizontally from the underside, many nice bits will be obtained. Let's be honest, instructions like this aren't really that helpful. The tone is both specific and completely unclear. For a person who has never carved before, this book would have a very limited use. Yet it is in keeping with its kind. Most carving manuals use a similar linguistic structure of specific but inadequate instructions. Is it surprising then that carving, so highly prized and yet so poorly explained, became the site of anxiety? So why is it important to look at cutlery? To construct a whole understanding of a novel, we have to examine the objects that may not seem important to us, but were fantastically significant to the culture in which the novel was written. If we do this, we can begin to unpick their use and may uncover a whole host of new meanings. While we have comparatively little interest in cutlery now, it is only by examining these items that we can begin to unpick how 19th century texts use cutlery as a manifestation of the anxiety felt by men in the home. If we fail to understand the value of objects to a society that pours great significance into them, we lose a step in understanding different cultures and our own history. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Paul Jackson and Jonathan Jennings for their help making this, and to Polly, Joe and everyone at Techni for giving me this opportunity. The music was by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech. I'm Katie Jackson and I do hope you've enjoyed.